This episode is sponsored by QuantStamp and Nexo.io. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. At Coindesk, we have a thing we call Theme Weeks, where one week of every month we focus on a topic. We get reporters and op-ed contributors to provide articles and columns We do TV interviews on the issue and we dedicate podcast episodes to the same theme. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that this month's theme, which happens to be highlighted this very week, is the most important one confronting our internet existence. I'm talking about privacy. So since Money Reimagined does not shy away from big topics, I'd say, Sheila, we refuse to be daunted by them. That's the focus of today's show. Most people will understand on some intuitive level that online privacy is a problem. We all know about how our personal data is at risk from hackers and hear the constant stories about attacks and breaches. But there's also a mindset that says no one cares about privacy. There's this idea that we've given up on it for the convenience of everything that the Web 2.0 age supposedly offers us in terms of connectivity and information. If you've been paying attention to Money Reimagined over the past year or so, you'd know that we think this is a dangerously naive position. And maybe, just maybe, the world is waking up to that. If so, it's because the privacy problems in the Web 2.0 era are staggeringly large. Trillions of dollars in cyber crimes that are entirely focused on accessing data that is supposed to be private. The literal attack on our democracy from scandals such as the Cambridge Analytica partnership with Facebook Edward Snowden's NSA revelations, and now the talk of China's new digital currency giving a government unprecedented snooping power. But believe it or not, it's more insidious than that. We're now learning that every aspect of our lives is being driven by the algorithms of big corporate platforms such as Facebook and Google. In some respects, we're discovering that we are already living in the matrix. Can we undo the mess we've created? Our two guests today will tell us that yes, we can they are also not going to downplay the magnitude of the problem. In any case, I am sure that we would struggle to find two people more qualified to talk about this. David Chaum is widely recognized as the father of digital currency. In the 90s, he launched a project called DigiCash that became the forerunner for Bitcoin and for this giant world of crypto that now consumes us. It's not hyperbole to say that David is a giant in the field of cryptography the technology that really makes the modern internet possible, and which, paradoxically, is both at the heart of many of its worst abuses and the only solution to them. These days, David's calling card is that he is the inventor of the XX Messenger and founder of the XX Network, touted as the first consumer-scale, quantum-secure online platform that allows you to communicate and exchange value without revealing so-called metadata. Tor Baer is the founder of Secret Foundation, one of the core organizations supporting the secret network. That's its name, by the way, not necessarily its description. It's a private by default blockchain for permissionless applications. 
Tor has worked full-time at the intersection of privacy and blockchain since 2017. Before we get to these two great guests, let's hear from my co-host, Sheila Warren. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So before we get to privacy, like we'd be remiss not to just look at the other elephant in the room, and that is the state of markets, the crypto markets. I mean, <laughs> quite a yep. um, tumultuous experience these past couple of weeks, and people sort of wondering whether the, the joy is gone from all this and everything else. I've been in this for so long. I, I for some reason I just feel uh, underwhelmed by it. Like I'm like, could not agree more. So many times, you know. <laughs> yeah, here we are again. You know, this so the cycle continues, right? As you know, I think we've talked about this. I don't even tend to check. I tend to find out about these crashes like a little later than you would expect that I would because I'm certainly not refreshing the index on a regular basis because it's you know to some extent I think we're here for different reasons and I always think that I'm not going to call this a bear market or whatever it is but certainly this kind of volatility separates a little bit like the true believers and the wheat from the chaff, you know? And so my favorite year so far has been the year that we were in a full-on bear market because the building that happened was just fantastic. Mm. And we're all reaping benefits from that right now. But on privacy, and my hope is of course that privacy will be a main focus of the build that happens during this particular period of downturn, right? Because people are going to have the time to worry less about the marketing and communications, let's say, around some of these things and really focus on the build, which is at the end of the day, it's still needed. You know, we're still in the adolescence of this technology. But on privacy, I think it's something that we talk about a lot of Money Reimagined is the idea that culture drives a lot of the value that we give money, like the, the, the money, money's a meme, like all these things we've talked about as general thematics of our, of our entire, the reason we started the show in the first place. And privacy is no different. It really does have a lot of cultural connection. And the ways that we think about and talk about privacy are rooted in our expectations around how we interact with each other as a society. What is the role of government? What are the role of corporations? How do we want to treat each other? How much trust do we have in human nature to act in pro-social versus antisocial ways? And so, so many of these things I'm hoping we'll talk about today, but I think are reflected in the differences you see around how privacy is talked about. You mentioned China, of course, and in my mind, I always think it's naive and, and frankly just offensive to kind of paint any culture with one broad brush. And certainly, as we well know, the leadership in government does not reflect the views of the entire population by any means, regardless of how representative democracy might be. Uh, but certainly, I do think that China has provided, I think, a frame uh, for this conversation, the fact that there's a lot of openness around digital surveillance, and that's kind of part of the intention of some of the experiments the current Chinese leadership is investigating or interrogating, I do think provides us a way of engaging with this topic that I think mm. is really important. Yeah, yeah. And I want to point out that when I mentioned China before that, I mentioned Snowden's NSA revelations about the United States, right? So, you know, it, it does cut both ways. But on that note, why don't we bring our guests in? So welcome, David. Welcome, Tor. David, to you first. It's a joy to have you here. I remember I was writing The Age of Cryptocurrency back in 2014 with, with Paul Vineyard. And I don't think you'd really been engaged at that point very much, if I understand it correctly, in the cryptocurrency world. I mean, you probably, I think you were working on a bunch of stuff in stealth, right? But I've yeah. managed to get through to you and find you and talk to you. And it was just a, a pleasure because, yeah, truly somebody that people look to as the founder of this whole thing, which is really, really a, a big honor for you and, and puts you puts a lot of pressure on you as well, by the way. <laughs> so welcome. I don't know. You know, when I'm walking <laughs> around some of the conferences, you know, every second person I run into wants to shake my hand. Yeah. And uh, I think people are appreciative. I've made a lot of people rich. And uh, it's true. It's <laughs> not lost on most of them, but this thing has now been raised to a level where it's not no longer ignorable by the powers that be. Right. And this is creating 
tremendous opportunity this moment. It's an extremely exciting place. And um, well, you know, you say it's a lot of responsibility. And I'll just let me just riff on that. And, and sure, yeah. Uh, just you see, when you've done something like I did, like invent the untraceable sending in 1979, and most of the a lot of the crypto stuff, and you know, set cryptography free by having a conference when NSA said they were going to put people in jail for doing that and so forth. It's kind of a hard act to follow. And so the only thing you can really do is something really spectacular. A lot of people, you know, live off the same thing they did a long time ago, or they keep changing what they're doing and claiming they're reinvented. But uh, I've been pursuing the same mission since the late 70s. And I'm delighted that there's a, a few really exciting new uh, shoes that will drop. I've made some really fundamental innovations that you'll be hearing about in the coming weeks, actually. And the Messenger is the implementation of one that was announced like five years ago, where I found a way to speed up the mixing by a factor of like a thousand, and no one had really ever sped it up since, you know, I proposed it in 79, even though there were like over 6,000 references to the original article I, I read on Google Scholar. So it's important for us to step back and take this kind of higher level perspective to start with, right? So before we bring Tor into the conversation, you know, your column for Coindesk, thanks for your contribution there, addressed this idea that privacy is an inalienable right. But you also heard me mention in my monologue to start with there, there are folks who have just written it off, right? There's this, there was this thesis, oh, we don't care about privacy anymore because all these other benefits come from it, which I think is as I said, dangerously naive. There's so much harm that has been done out of that ignorance. So in the context of that, what do you mean by this? You know, what is this inalienable right? And how do we raise that concept to the level of awareness that it perhaps should be? Well, let me, let me unpack that. I think there's really two questions. I mean, one is, does it make sense to say that, you know, who would be interested in spying on me or I don't really care and uh, that sort of thing. That's a really interesting topic. And then the inalienable thing is, is a wholly new thing that raises a real issue of digital slavery and stuff that I'd, I'd love, love to I'll get a chance to really go into that. But first, I mean, just think about privacy. And we're at a point where Edward Snowden has told us that the governments are making the full take. They capture everything. You know, you could store all the chat messages that everyone sends on a small little hardware device. I mean, you don't even need the big data centers they have for storing everything. So it's a matter of record what you've said, even if it's encrypted. But when the quantum computers are available to various actors, all that content will be transparently readable. And the AI and machine learning will be able to analyze it almost for free. So it's essentially silly to say, you know, who would take the trouble or you know, I don't have anything to hide. You know, we, we know that it will happen. So it, as soon as you switch over to quantum resistant messaging, your traffic will be protected on an ongoing basis. Until then, everything you say now is and will be used. I don't know if it's against you, but <laughs> sort of, uh, you know, in some way, uh, yeah. without your, maybe without your knowledge or consent by various actors. And it's hard to predict these days, more so than in you know, in recent memory, like who those actors will really be, you know, so this also gives some pause. So, but one reason to support all this privacy technology is not just because you're personally worried. It's also, you have to support the ecosystem because there are people whose lives 
depend on privacy journalists, people put themselves in harm's way and all kinds of stuff. So it is it's a socially responsible thing to do to, to use these kind of platforms and support them. It's also, I think, important to recognize that there is an aspect of privacy that we just have to let go of. Was said famously years ago, right? You know, get over it, right? You have no privacy. Mm. Well, that is true, probably, in terms of walking around privacy, because the Internet of Things, all the space cameras, all this stuff, there's a bunch of stuff that you're doing, and it's sort of public, and you just have to realize that that's going to be analyzed and scrutinized and recorded and, and not worry about it. Government policy is not really effective at stopping or really giving comfort that that kind of thing's not happening. What is crucial to the future of civilization is simply that people have the ability to communicate securely and privately among their friends and family to have political discussion. Absent that, there is no concept of democracy. That is the meaning of democracy. You know, free speech is one thing, but what's actually necessary is to be able to develop a political opinion, obtain information, and maybe supply it. So a little bit of payments in that context, that's kind of the way I, I see this whole discussion. And so if you want to get on with your life, you have to say, well, I know, but I, I you know, you just have to do these things. That's the whole idea behind XX Messenger and the XX Network. We've made something that's simply, you just switch over to our messenger and this will be essentially, currently it's just a messenger, but it's certainly it will be like uh, WeChat, but all quantum, can't take it down with a quantum computer and you can't spy on people with a quantum computer. So this is messaging integrated with payments is what you need for that protected sphere. And then we can add access to all kinds of other key Web3 features, like WeChat in China has the mini apps, right? So we can have that as well. So you don't have to use all the stuff, jump through the hoops that blockchain people are familiar with. You can just use it as an ordinary consumer user of information technology, but with these guarantees, by running it in a Web3 decentralized manner across, you know, like we're in 80 countries right now, it's like 350 nodes are live. I mean, it creates its own uh, governance. QuantStamp is looking for talented people to join our team and help us secure the blockchain industry. Our clients include major blockchain projects like Ethereum 2.0, DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and Aave, and global enterprises like Toyota. As a fully remote team, working for QuantStamp means a great work-life balance, an environment that values creativity and effectiveness, and compensation packages on par with big tech. Come work for the leading blockchain security company, Learn more at quantstamp.com slash careers. Nexo is a trusted and easy to use crypto platform where you can buy cryptocurrencies at the touch of a button and start earning up to 17% annual interest that is paid out daily. They support all of the major assets on the market and even allow you to swap one asset for another or borrow cash against your crypto without selling it. Nearly 3 million people in over 200 countries trust Nexo with their digital assets. So whether you're just getting started or you're a seasoned pro, get the most of your crypto today with Nexo at nexo.io. So I'm going to avoid going full lawyer on this. I mean, I could talk about Griswold versus Etiquette and like how the law is codifying this kind of concept of privacy and what is privacy. And I think that we're seeing actions 
by Supreme Court right now that are kind of eroding the common understanding we've had in the legal realm of what privacy is. And I think that not everybody understands the implications in some of the spaces that are active right now, gun rights, abortion, whatever, for the internet. The same basis and foundational law is what kind of governs this concept of privacy. What I think we're seeing is something that I think of as like differentiated privacy, right? So there's this question on a blockchain. People are always like, oh, it's transparent. So everyone can see everything. And isn't that so great? But what I think what people care about is like, who, who exactly is seeing what? I truly really don't care about people seeing them. And I think we have eroded to your point, David, some of our expectations about the walk around kind of privacy and cameras and whatnot. Like, I don't, I don't think most of us are like scanning constantly, you know, for where the cameras are, all that kind of stuff. We just default probably assume that there is somebody who's got a ring or whatever that's kind of <laughs> tracking us. You know, I, certainly that's how I feel about things in San Francisco. But I do think our online activity is significantly different. I do think people's common understanding of privacy there is a matter of what is the default setting. And so I couldn't agree with you more. And Tor, I really want to get your thoughts on this and how secret is working in this space. I think you're exactly right. Like what is our default setting and who are we trying to protect and prioritizing? And I think that you're absolutely right, David, in your assessment that the concept of privacy as a default is critical to the functioning of effective democracy. Like, I just think that is absolutely right. And we don't always know who is having those kinds of conversations. So I think about this a lot in the context of worker rights. There are laws that say if workers are organizing, they're allowed to do that, right? There's protections around their conversations where they're sharing information about their job that might be otherwise private because it is in service of organizing to create a union or whatever it might be. So there are places where we've carved out these exceptions to our default understanding. And the question I think becomes, as we move towards this new version of the internet, I think we're all passionate about. What should that default setting look like? But Tori, I would love to get your thoughts on everything we've chatted about and also tell us more about Secret. Wow. I mean, there's 700 things all <laughs> to unpack in there. And first of all, I am so incredibly impressed with obviously David's experience in the space for an extremely long time. And it's wonderful to hear about the advancements that are still now even being made on like the bleeding edge of what privacy is going to have to look like if we actually want privacy guarantees, if we don't want to just talk about it, like quantum resistance and things like that. These are deeply, deeply complex topics. Then we're going well beyond what most users forget in the web two space, even in the web three crypto blockchain space, people aren't really thinking about these issues on an active basis, even when they should be, they are more often thinking through it from like, what is touching me as a user? So the privacy spectrum for users in web three, that's not the most tangible aspect of blockchain technology. It's not the first thing you feel as a user. The first thing that you're feeling with a lot of blockchain technology and crypto is actually these days, the monetary aspect. And that's most of the use cases we've seen to date. And there's this big speculative aspect to it. Yes, but really what it comes back to is an idea of ownership. And these are user governed platforms. These are user owned platforms to some extent. That's what users feel first. There's a certain level of autonomy and ownership and control that you feel as a user. The trade-off that you're making by and large with 99% of blockchain-based technologies is the privacy trade-off. And you're not conscious of that trade-off because the other aspect of it feels so different. This idea that you can be part owner, part author of the platform that you're using. And instead of being the product, right, you now have a stake in the product. There's this idea of cooperative ownership of these platforms. That I think is what users are feeling. And when I hear about these new privacy technologies that are being built in the blockchain space, my first thought is, okay, is this going to get adopted? Because to make a user use something, the user really has to feel like there's some sort of direct benefit that they're getting. If privacy is that direct benefit and we can make that tangible, that's great. But by and large, 
that hasn't been the types of technologies that have been adopted in web two. There's no guarantee those are gonna be the types of technologies that get adopted by default in web three, even if we make it the default. The issue seems to be that we've gone the last decade or so in the blockchain space where public by default is the norm. Bitcoin is public by default. Ethereum is public by default. You go to the blockchain, it's not a question of who has access to what. The answer is already obvious. Everyone has access to everything as soon as it hits the chain. So what we tried to do with Secret Network is could we build out a generalizable smart contract platform with a private by default data model? Meaning if you are the user, you can decrypt the nature of your interactions with the contracts in the network. You can see what you've done on the platform, but that is primarily only accessible to you unless you choose to share that access. And it becomes more tangible for the user then, because then instead of thinking when they're using the application, okay, how private is this at point A, B, C, they're thinking, do I have control? Am I consenting to the use of my data in this platform? There's all these different checkpoints around consent and control and ownership that users are actually appreciating. And Secret is a permissionless network. Anybody can operate a node, anybody can deploy a contract, anybody can interact with the contract and use the application. So this intersection of permissionlessness and privacy, I'm hoping that that becomes the focus for Web3 technologies because my op-ed for Coindesk was all about the Web3 metaverse, what it looks like and how the alternative is Facebook's metaverse, where it's just gonna be, you log into Oculus with your eyeballs and that's it, right? It's already over once you did that. No, nobody wants that version of the metaverse, but we keep presenting this alternative Web3 metaverse that's completely public by default, which is even worse than waiting for Facebook to leak your data to Cambridge Analytica. Cambridge Analytica already has it, and so does Chainalysis, and so does absolutely every observer of the blockchain and the validators themselves. So yeah, it's a false choice to say it's either Facebook's metaverse or it's the open public by default Web3 metaverse. I definitely believe that what we have to build is the private by default metaverse. Otherwise, you know, we're stuck with two equally bad options and both I think could be co-opted by surveillance states and certainly not to our benefit in that event. So maybe you can break this down a little bit to all because you know, it's interesting like hearing David talk about Web3, you know, you use the term David, so we are, these Web3 solutions are sort of as if by definition, Web3 is this, in some people's minds, the recovery of my data that I'm now in charge, right? And, and the blockchain is an element of that, it seems, and so forth. So it's almost like the word itself is being used as if it were to say, um, you know, this is a privacy version of, of the web that we're moving toward. And, but you're telling, you're saying otherwise, your column today was like, no, these Web3 platforms we're talking about could just be just as bad as the other ones. First of all, to break that down, because there's a whole discussion about Web3, so we're throwing questions with multiple elements to them to you right now. But the other piece of it is, how do we deal with this contrast, right? Because the inherent feature of a blockchain is the public nature of it, right? It is the fact that the, the information is distributed, we're able to see it. And because of that, we can all collectively reach a consensus around that. If there isn't some sharing of information, then you can't have a blockchain, right? So what is it that is shared and where that line gets drawn? And if it is sharding and multi-party computation or whatever it is, yeah. nonetheless, there is this shared exercise to data. How do you make that distinction? Where does the line get drawn? The only point I wanted to make, which is that it's not fair to say that the only way to achieve consensus is by making all data public to all parties. Mm -hmm. Because it, once you make that assumption, then we're saying we can't have Web3, we can't have decentralized permissionless technologies with consensus unless we compromise security, unless we just expose everything as public by default. These are two different concepts. So where I think we're all trying to head, which is how can we make these still be secure systems, but we still know that they can operate trustlessly. There is that idea of auditability. We know they're coming to provably correct solutions, but we didn't get there by just like, it, it would be like everybody agreeing 
that we all have the same poker hands, but the only way to know that was we, we'd have to lay all of our cards face up on the table. It's like, technically that works. Not a very interesting poker game, not very conducive to commerce, not the world that we're trying to build. We need to be able to protect some data for ourselves, but we all want to agree that once we're holding the cards, what we say we have, we, we all agree on the game state. We all agree on the world state, but that doesn't mean that we have to compromise security by saying we all have to know each other's cards or there has to be a backdoor by which one surveilling party can see all cards simultaneously. Like once we kind of get away from that understanding of what security would need to look like in the blockchain space, we start to understand that we can put privacy in the center and we can put trustlessness in the center. And it's a false choice to have to be selecting one or the other. I've been a founding member of the advisory board for the Electronic Privacy Information Center, which was the spinoff from EFF that moved to DC. And I was often a guest at the OECD, you know, with the privacy panels and committees and discussions. So I've been steeped in this whole legal question and all these, you know, all these amicus briefs and all this way of looking at the privacy over many decades. And, you know, the U.S. has been a little bit behind the rest of the world. But still, I would say that that is the fundamental problem with that whole line of thinking, because inherent in the the legal analysis that I've seen is this implicit assumption that everything still works, like with filing cabinets and, you know, newspapers and printing, and it's all the same. But cryptography belies that completely. It's a fundamentally different set of possibilities, but it's not obvious. Uh, I think we're suffering from a lack of awareness of, of the real possibilities. I think you partly see it in the way that blockchain is often characterized as trustless. When the meme gets out there that you can have your security and your privacy too, it's going to be vote very well for the world. I totally agree. I was thinking what you're saying, Tor, about that poker game. I have a daughter who recently turned six. And the difference between five and six-year-olds is that five-year-olds, when they play games, cheat. It's just what they do. It's actually age appropriate. And they get very offended if you try to cheat or if you point out they're cheating because they truly feel entitled to all the information. So that poker game you describe where everyone has to share their cards <laughs> would be very appealing to her. But I often ask myself, you know, jokes aside, who's the five-year-old in this situation? Who's the five-year-old who wants to have the edge through having access to information that either no one else has access to or no one has the ability to make sense of what that information is in a meaningful way that they can then act upon? Oh. Like just note that they turn six and all of a sudden they're like, then they get very self-righteous about your cheating, right? Like, how dare you? Yeah. Like, you know, oh, this has been the, the role of, you know, the intelligence community yeah. uh, forever. They have had secret access to everything and they don't feel any guilt about it. No shame whatsoever. <laughs> I was going to ask know, when Facebook is turning six. social in general right it's really interesting because i think people are aware of the advantage of that but when you visualize it as simply as playing a poker game where one person can see everyone else's hands and no one else can it really makes it more powerful for people because i think to your point you're making david earlier i do think there's some fatigue around this not because people think that you know corporations or platforms or the government or whatever having this access is the right thing but because it's just what do you do? But there isn't a sense of like, what do you do about that? And I know people who've like left social, you know, left platforms and come back and this and that because of the gravity of that, particularly during a pandemic, when you have other ways of staying connected, like all these kinds of things are very real cultural influences. But yeah, I think it behooves us all to say, 
do we want a system where everyone's the five-year-old or no one's the five-year-old, right? And what is the default? And of course, like what again is available to whom and for what purpose and who is vetting that that purpose is pro-social as opposed to selfish or, or even overtly antisocial, even malevolent. People can make their own deals, so to speak, you know, when they go out into the informational world in a Web3 context, you know, they can sort of choose their own arrangements and uh, insist on privacy that there will be people willing to provide that to them. So I think it's going to be a bit different when the centralized world is creates a monolithic consumer offering, and that can be very frustrating. And the people in China that I've spent a bit of time in China, people just don't talk. They won't talk to you about it. They don't want to think about it. It strikes us as a Westerner as a very odd thing. Both of you talk about there are solutions, right? That we do have the technology to do this. We can have our cake and eat it too. And David, in your piece, you sort of talked about, I think, you know, some rebuilding the internet almost from the ground up to get to these principles. And, and Tor, in your piece as well, you talked about this privacy by design as almost a foundational principle of what Web3 needs to be. So my question to both of you, to you, Tor, first is like, okay, great. How big a job is that? We've established this infrastructure. We've established, and an infrastructure is not just the technology. It's literally the ways of acting. It is these hugely powerful monopolies of communicative, collective platforms that are social in their power more than just economic or technical. So how do we break all that down and start again? Clearly we can, but what are the steps we need to take? Yeah, I don't want anybody to think that I'm a, an anarchist or a hyper-libertarian or anything where I'm advocating for the abolishment of all existing systems, legal or technical or otherwise. Like, There's a lot of work that needs to be done at the foundational level of the internet, and there's a lot of people doing that incredible work. And, and like David is doing, solving the problem that comes after the problem, right? Already seeing the issues that are going to come from like a quantum computing future is essential. You have to have that level yeah. of foresight. The biggest risk I see is that just like you're saying earlier, people are going to take the narrative about Web3, what they think Web3 is on the surface and say, okay, well, finally, we've got blockchains. We're ready to fight back against surveillance capitalism without understanding that they're walking into a sword fight with a wet noodle and trying to like actually battle these forces of surveillance capitalism with something that is just even worse when it comes to privacy guarantees for users. And there's this massive educational component that needs to start now if we want to reorient the conversation around, okay, what now must we do? What now is in our court as builders or legislators or, or private sector lawyers, entrepreneurs, whatever, we need to know the battle that we're actually trying to fight. And if we think that this part of the battle is already solved just by saying we built these decentralized systems, therefore it is trustless and uncensorable. And then we've just got it ass backwards, like to turn a phrase. Mm -hmm. uh, I really hope that at least the conversation shifts because then we can start putting our attention back on those sorts of foundational initiatives to fix the infrastructure, not just of the internet, but you know, Web3 specifically to be private by default. The risk being that we go so far down the path of these public by default systems, you know, Bitcoin, Ethereum, all these public by default networks get so big, so prolific, integrated into so many Web2 platforms that the social layer of Web2 creeps into the user incentive layer of Web3. And now we are part owners of tons of public by default platforms. We're incentivized to stick to platforms that ultimately actually don't benefit us. Mm. To me, that is the big risk is we're not going to build good enough solutions that are private by default fast enough to counteract that trend. And at the same time, we're fighting that battle. We have the other battle where we have to build these bazookas like David is doing that mm. are going to be the real huge steps forwards around resistant messaging and organizing technologies, the real keys to you know, self-sovereign organization 
real human empowerment for the decades to come. So it sounds like part of the problem is the language you're using and the, and the sort of the concepts and the, like Always. not being clear about what we're talking about. But it would seem to me also the business models as well. You got technical solutions, but like how do we actually create an environment in which it's profitable and attractive to build these sort of pro-privacy models from the start? I mean, first again, do you tour just because you guys are in this space, right? You are enabling yeah. apps to be there, and you're you know you've, you've been trying to build businesses on this basis, so. Yeah, I mean, that's the cryptocurrency piece of it, where you can make users part owners of the network and part owners of the platforms. That's the incentive model, the same as the incentive model is in other networks. The incentive model is, is a layer, and privacy is another layer. You can still have user ownership and still have these privacy guarantees for users. That would also be a false choice. So our methodology is the same that it is for any other Web3 system. Like, What's the incentive for users to use Ethereum and applications built on Ethereum? There's the economic incentive for being a, an Ethereum miner. There's the economic incentive for issuing tokens on the platform and then uh, creating integrations for those tokens within decentralized applications. It's the same economic incentives emerging for Secret Network and its ecosystem. It's just that we also have the privacy guarantees. And if we have the best economic systems, if we scale the fastest for these applications, if they're solving real use cases, we can get just as big as any of these other layer one ecosystems we just want to be also providing the privacy guarantees. One thing I'll say that privacy gives us an advantage for is that there's a lot of people who will only flow one direction within the system. Once they experience a private by default system, they do not go back the other way. And there's plenty of people where they'll absolutely you know, go to the private by default system after trying something public, or they'll go from one public network to another. We end up being a black hole for the most ethos-driven people in the space or people who have suffered from a lack of privacy through whatever security properties they've lost in other networks. We tend to naturally over time accrue human capital and technical capital from people who have experienced the downside of public by default systems. And it's one directional flow. But I mean, like David will tell you the same thing. That's the beauty of cryptography. Sometimes things only work in one direction and that's kind of the point. Yeah, thanks, uh, Michael. I mean, there's raised a couple of questions that I guess, let me just simply say that to the second point, it's not necessary to create a whole new network because technology is so advanced. You can just now afford an overlay network. So in the, in the old days, we couldn't. Now you can. That's just a network that's built on the current network. And so the XX Messenger, which as I mentioned, relevant to our topic here, available now in the app stores just this week. Just like any other messenger, it's easy to use. There's no special blockchain awareness needed, but it does run on our 350 nodes around the world and it protects your privacy, both in terms of the end-to-end encryption being quantum resistant, which no other messenger has. And it also protects the communication by the metadata shredding. So each message makes five hops and it's randomized in a batch of thousand messages by randomly chosen nodes and they forget how they reorder it. So that's why the, the metadata is shredded. So basically, it's a very easy to use, simple thing that anyone can use that actually does protect your privacy in a fundamentally strong way now, in really an endgame way. You can switch to it. So there's no longer a reason to hesitate to move to it. Now, it's, it's for a limited uh, portion of your life. You know, it's a very secure, protected sphere. So it, it's not going to have forums with thousands of people in them or stuff like that. It's for small groups and direct messaging and, and so on. 
And then as we add payments, it becomes the WeChat, the most popular dominant type of application that most people want to use messaging combined with payments. And then we add the mini apps. We're good. So this is the way forward. Let me just jump in just for our listeners want to clarify, because not everyone's going to be familiar with the concept of metadata, right? And so it's important to understand that I think people have a very visceral understanding of data itself. Like you put something, a photo, whatever out there, but the metadata is data about that data. So it's basically saying when it was created, where, how, who, you know, et cetera, IP addresses, like things like this. And what is not necessarily as commonly understood is, is the value of that metadata to both centralized platforms and companies, but also for the, from the standpoint of surveillance, it gives a tremendous amount of information about this. And so I'm curious just to get a quick, you know, David, you went into this, but Tor, how do you think about, you know, data versus metadata and how a blockchain interacts or interfaces with both of those concepts? And, and what is your general, I guess, weighting of importance around that? Or how do you think about those concepts just from kind of a more layperson standpoint? I think what the layperson recognizes, at least with blockchains now, is when they're like the data that they're sending actively consenting to the use of the blockchain. Like they understand, like, they go on a block explorer, they see what they did to Ethereum, and then they go, oh, okay, my money went from here to there. And they kind of stop at that point, right? That's what touches the user. I, I think it's very obvious that users don't think about everything else that goes into it. And then MetaMask has these massive security holes published about where it's collecting everybody's IP addresses and potentially leaking those. And we just kind of, in terms of the saving calories part of it, I think users are saving those calories right now. We, we are really not thinking about those aspects of how we interact with Web3 technologies. You have to be, as a builder, thinking about all of those if you want to provide an actual private by default experience. I, I can definitely tell you which one is more tangible for users. And I can definitely tell you that it's not that one is more important than the other to solve. Like All of this matters. If you're just protecting data and you don't think about the, the metadata that surrounds your interactions, let's say the contract in the network or with an application, that is your front end access to that network, then you know, you're know you obfuscating it from yourself, the, something that you probably should be aware of. But I, I understand that it's very mentally taxing to be aware of that at all times and a little horrifying too, if you just think about how passively we are leaking all of that. Yeah. And a really classic example of when I first became really aware of the impact of metadata is as a lawyer. And so you send documents back and forth that have revisions in them. There's like lore and legend about people looking at an edit history, a revision history to see what internal comments were made with a client by the other side. And then using that as leverage in a negotiation because the lawyer didn't strip the metadata. They didn't understand how to do that. And all of that record became available. And you can imagine, I think that's a really easy way, I hope, for people to get their heads around why this is really, really important. And when we talk about default privacy, it's not just encrypting your data in a certain way, like what you're sending, and then no one can read it. It's, it's a lot more than that. It's the act of having sent that from a particular place and time and space and all that kind of stuff that also has a, a lot of significance when it comes to what it means to be surveilled, particularly as a citizen. So we're going to have to wrap at this point. Look, I think that's a pretty good place to end, actually, because it's a point about education, about people sort of understanding these concepts and how important that is if we're going to make progress as a society here, because there are all sorts of vested interests who are there to try to keep this existing system because it's been exceedingly profitable for you know, a number of strong entities. Creating awareness around these seemingly complex, but actually not necessarily that difficult, if we use some of the metaphors that Sheila was applying there uh, to understand issues is critical. So on that basis, you know, and we see this podcast as well as much of what Coindesk does as an integral part of the educational process. And certainly, Tor, you've 
been at the forefront of that educational process through your own podcast. And David, you've been talking to everyone from government officials to cryptographers to just regular folks about this stuff for many, many years. So keep up the good fight. Thank you very much for, uh, for joining us in this little slice of that and for both of your contributions to Privacy Week. It was a great pleasure to have you both on. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much for joining us as well, everybody. Uh, as always, come back next week and join us for another edition of Money Reimagined. Bye for now. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, and guests Tor Bear and David Chom. Our theme song is Shepherd. This episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau, with additional production support from Eleanor Paul and announcements by Adam B. Levine. Have any questions or comments? Please send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.